These are the Psy War Soldiers. Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major audio podcatchers, and Odyssey as well. Uh, credit to Jinx for that uh, amazing intro. Uh, that's what kind of sucked me into it, for those who aren't aware. They got me into this whole OKC thing with that very edit. Uh, today, my guest is Richard Booth. And as you can tell, we're going to be going into the OKC stuff again. This is the sixth part. With uh, We do have the other bonus episode as well. Uh, for those who aren't aware of how this works, if you're watching on the sixth, uh, you are catching the uh, the live stream. Uh, you are getting it, the, the public version. It, otherwise, you're going to have to wait till like a week or so or however long it is, depending on my schedule when it drops. Uh, and if you want to be able to catch it in the meantime, you'd be at patreon.com. So that's no way Jose 2020 and be a patron. The lowest level is two bucks to be able to get that. Uh, there are differing perks. Uh, the highest level being 20, and that's my sponsors. And I read them every, off every episode. My sponsors are CD McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. Jeremy, who has an Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash Raising Liberty. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes and Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. Uh, I do want to let you guys know to remind you some other content. If this is your first time popping in or if you're not aware of my other stuff, I do. I have did an interview with Duncan Lemp's widow. I've also had uh, one of the Michigan kidnapping plot conspirators, quote unquote, on my, on my show a few times now with more to come, actually. Uh, so you can go check that out. All of those have, uh, uh, the, the Duncan Lamp ones, episode 171, the other ones have playlists. So, and then I also have Dave Smith coming back on my show on the 12th. This show will probably drop. So if you're watching the live stream, that, that's a, that's news. If you're watching, if you're seeing this when it comes out, it'll already have come out. So if that's something that interests you, you can go check that out. Uh, make sure you go check out Top Lobster at toplobster.com. You still say at checkout for 10% off. He has all my merch, bunch of other big shows, merch, uh, ton of merch. He also has stuff that's not show related, just original, you know, kind of content. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into it. Hey, Richard, pleasure to have you back. Hey, Jose, how you doing? Good, good. I'm excited to get back into this. It's been a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, just to, and we do this every episode. Normally, I wouldn't do this for uh, you know, every guest if we're doing an ongoing series, but. Being, you know, you know, I feel like people who pay attention, watch this may seem like sometimes we go into kook territory, but I want to remind people that you actually, you know, are coming from, you know, well-sourced. This is stuff you've dug into deeply. So if you could just take a moment and introduce yourself and, you know, what, who you are and what you've done and, 
uh, the content that you've worked on and collected over time? Sure. Yep. So I'm Richard Booth. I read about and write about the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, I collected over a period of a couple of years a large number of newspaper clippings and FBI documents, Secret Service documents, transcripts, primary source material on the Oklahoma City bombing. And I took all of that material and uh, donated that to Scott Horton at the Libertarian Institute in 2019. He put all of that online uh, where it's searchable. And it's basically a database of material uh, for Oklahoma City bombing researchers so that they can have the information they need in order to write essays about this subject. And that's my hope uh, for the work that I do is I just wanna bring awareness to the subject and to get the material into people's hands. And it comes from um, legitimate sources, you know, like I said, transcripts, documents. I tend to stay away from things that are uh, opinion or speculatory, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, uh, I think there's a reason why this series has been, been doing so well. The more and more time goes on and the more and more I get embroiled in this story, the more uh, current uh, modern day things really uh, kind of, you know, tick at my spidey senses a little bit. Uh, I mean, anyone, uh, you know, I'm not sure, you know, when people like uh, obviously right now, if you're watching, say if you're watching the live stream, there's definitely been some modern day stuff that came up that was kind of crazy. Uh, if you're watching this much later in the future, maybe we'll be shown to be being a little bit crazy. But I do think the only way that to maybe mitigate the response of the possibility of future things like this or even prevent it is the kind of knowledge of stuff that we're dropping here. Uh, so I, it is uh, it's the, the more the more time goes on, the more I'm like, holy shit. Uh, and this really uh, feeds into that. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm kind of getting at, especially the, the crazy Biden speech recently. Uh, and I'm not trying to make this partisan po politics at all for anyone who's, you know, watching this, uh, you know, but it definitely does kind of tick at you. are like, oh, well, that's weird. Uh, uh, you know, kind of, is that a precedent? I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it is. Uh, we'll see. Um, but, you know, the uh, PatCon was a thing. So, uh, but we, last time we, 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 uh, we were here, we were going into characters, uh, kind of break, breaking down each individual characters. Uh, and we have a few more to knock out, and then uh, I think we wanted to kind of wrap it up in a bow with to kind of touch back on the John Doe stuff at the end. So I want to start off with Richard Lee Guthrie, who is one of the OKC associates, and uh, have you kind of let me know what you know about him. I know there's some weird stuff in his uh, his story, so if you could do that, I'd appreciate it. Definitely. There is a lot of unusual stuff with Richard Lee Guthrie, and so he was a member of a group called the Aryan Republican Army. Uh, which was a neo-Nazi uh, gang, I guess you'd call them. They robbed banks around uh, the late 90s, 94, 95, 96. And uh, he was a founding member of that group. And uh, in fact, today, if you go to even if, for example, you go to Wikipedia and look up Aryan Republican Army, there's a whole section on the wiki page about connections to the Oklahoma City bombing. So, and that's a little surprising to me when I looked at it. I, I could, couldn't believe that this stuff was kept on there and not sanitized like you see with so many other pages. But uh, to start with him, basically, he was a special forces, I want to say, Navy SEAL uh, washout. He, I think it, it was that he washed out in buds and uh, was in the Navy. And he was kicked out of the Navy. This was in the 80s. Uh, for He actually... Um, went out of um, 
went out onto the hull of the ship and spray painted a swastika on the ship. And uh, he already was in a lot of trouble. He was in the brig when right before that happened. And anyway, he was not really acclimating very well to the Navy and as an antisocial uh, personality, it was not a good place for him. Uh, but he was very, very intelligent. And that's not really a good combination there with high intellect and antisocial personality. And so what you find is that after he got out of um, the military, he started doing things like going to Aryan nations rallies and, and making inroads within the organized white separatist community. And in doing that, he met someone named Peter Langan and they formed uh, what became known as the Aryan Republican Army. And basically they were hanging out at Elohim City in between bank robberies. They'd rob a bunch of banks and then they would go and they'd uh, live at Aryan, or that is to say at Elohim City. They would uh, spend a lot of time there with Andy Strassmeyer. Um, they hung out with him a lot, so they knew him and they knew all these other white separatist figures who were going through uh, Elohim City. And so they were a well-known group and they were actually in deed and in word um, living up to the order, a group from the early 80s. They were taking the mantle from that group and doing the same things that they were doing. What was interesting I found about them is that they did not um, enrich themselves from these robberies. Uh, surprising to me, what they did is, and this is about half a million dollars, uh, they took this money and they put it back into the movement, They, which is the same thing the order did. They took great sums of money and gave it to people who were involved with the organized white separatist community, people like William Pierce with the National Alliance, people like Louis Beam, who got a bunch of money from the order. And so they were committed revolutionaries. I guess is the word terrorists, really, because they were planning on far more than just bank robberies. And that's where the Oklahoma City bombing comes in, is uh, they were basically at Elohim City during the time that the bombing was planned there by Andy Strassmeyer and Tim McVeigh. And if Tim McVeigh needed additional soldiers for his operation, the members of the Aryan Republican Army were the ideal foot soldiers. They were already used to carrying out these very high-risk uh, bank robberies. And it is believed that some of the robberies that the Aryan Republican Army carried out were partly planned by Tim McVeigh, that he helped organize and plan these robberies with them. And we know this because he gave few hundred dollars uh, to his sister, Jennifer McVeigh, and he told her that those were proceeds from a bank robbery that he had helped plan. And he wanted to her to uh, deposit that into her bank account and then withdraw some funds and give him those funds so he could like, you know, no longer have connection to the serial numbers on, on the, the robbed money. So we know that at least, that there was a connection there, that he was likely involved with some of the robberies they did. In addition to that, um, there was some material that was recovered from Terry Nichols' home in Kansas by the FBI. 
And this was after Nichols in the mid 2000s uh, told the FBI that he had buried a large cache of material under his former home and that if the FBI went in there, they would find it. And in that cache of material, uh, there were things like detonators, uh, binary explosives, uh, various books, uh, just material uh, that, that he got uh, for the bombing. And Nichols said that among that material, the FBI would find the fingerprints of additional accomplices. And he specified that, you, that, that the FBI would find Roger Moore's fingerprints on some of that material. So what happened there is after a great deal of arm twisting, uh, the FBI did go ahead and do a raid on that house. It was only after pressure from two con uh, staffers from congressmen and to continually reach out to them. Obviously, they didn't want to do this, but they had so much pressure they did. When they did that and recovered all this material, they didn't say anything about it right away. In fact, it took us about two years to get information from the FBI to see what the results of the raid were. And of course, when they released their information, uh, they released a lab report where they basically said that they destroyed the material they had recovered. So they destroyed these blasting caps, these binary explosives, and they failed to identify any sort of fingerprints. However, at the time that this happened, a reporter named John Solomon, uh, he was the bureau chief for the Associated Press, so he held a pretty high position at the AP and is a very good investigative journalist. Uh, he had a source at the FBI, and his source was telling him there is a lot more to the Oklahoma City bombing than what we know. He was basically serving as a source for him to tell him things about the bombing that were not public knowledge. And one of the things that John Solomon's source told him, and I know this from talking to Roger Charles, who was working with, with Solomon on these stories in 2004, 2005. And uh, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this source uh, told Solomon that among the material that was recovered from Nichols' home, there was a fingerprint there, of course, of Roger Moore. And there was also, he said, a fingerprint in a hair sample from Richard Lee Guthrie. And so if that's true, that would be forensic evidence that directly links Guthrie to the Oklahoma City bombing, at least materials related to it. You combine that with the claims from McVeigh's sister about the bank robbery, and it really starts to look interesting. Um, for people who are interested in this, I suggest they read a book called In Bad Company, it's by Mark Ham, who's a criminology professor, and he wrote this book in 2001 called In Bad Company, Inside America's Terrorist Underground. And that book is about the Aryan Republican Army. And the central thesis of the book is that the various John Doe's in the Oklahoma City bombing case were members of the ARA. And I think he does a good job in outlining the details of that. Now, uh, Richard Guthrie, and along with all the rest of the ARA, were all apprehended eventually by the FBI. They had a separate case called Bomb Rob. Uh, that, that was the FBI's code name for the case, and they were investigating it at the time of the Oklahoma City bombing. When the bombing happened, uh, the FBI agents assigned to the bombing viewed the two cases as linked, and they had a lot of discussions with one another about that. And you can see this in FBI documents 
from the case. I actually have an FBI document that refers to the Aryan Republican Army as McVeigh and his associates. That's what they called the ARA, is McVeigh and his associates. So they're characterizing them in internal memoranda as being together, being a group. And then within a week of the bombing, you've got an FBI source talking to the Los Angeles Times, and they're telling the LA Times that the FBI is investigating how the bombing was possibly financed or supported uh, by a series of Midwest, then unsolved Midwest bank robberies, which in fact were the ARA robberies. So very early on, the bombing investigators connected the two cases, and you see it all throughout the documents, connections between the two, and uh, you see that fleshed out in Mark Ham's book. Now, um, as I've mentioned, all of them were captured in 1996. They served, uh, many of them, were, they were all convicted for various lengths of time, and uh, Richard Guthrie among them. Now, uh, when Guthrie was in in jail uh, before trial, before he got sent, uh, had a trial or anything, um, he actually began cooperating, and he began talking, and he uh, started writing a, uh, a manuscript about his time in the ARA, and that was called something like, I, I want to say, um, Banks for the Memories, the Taunting Bandits, something like that. And uh, he also started talking to journalists. And he talked to a, a journalist with the Los Angeles Times and told them that he was going to be pretty busy because he had a couple of grand juries to talk to about acts of terrorism. And that was really interesting. That was published in the newspaper. Uh, within a couple of days of talking to that LA Times journalist and talking about these grand juries he's going to talk to and how he's writing an autobiography, he was found hanging dead in his prison cell. And so he was found dead in prison. And of course, that was characterized as a suicide, although his family members had been talking to him and he was not despondent. He, in fact, I think was liking a lot of the attention he was getting and liked talking to these journalists, was interested in telling his story and what he knew. And ultimately, he didn't get to do that because he was found dead. Um, now, that death is not just viewed as suspicious by people like myself and other people who investigate this case, but also um, I read a story that, that quoted Dennis Mahon, who was a, a high figure in what's called the White Aryan Resistance, this racist group. And uh, Dennis Mahon said, oh, he was helped. And he said, uh, we, we have a lot of guys who are prison guards. It almost sounded like he was saying that, you know, one of our people took him out. That's what it sounded like he was saying. So I think he was killed in, in prison. And it may have been, probably was, been, had, was for what he knew regarding um, additional accomplices in Oklahoma City, himself probably being one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. I was just going to say that um, uh, he's kind of connected in a way to one of these other people, these other figures we were going to talk about, Michael Brescia. And the uh, reason I say that is, you know, of course, they're on the same crew that was robbing these banks. Um, but uh, they also uh, were staying uh, together at Elohim City. And uh, Brescia, he was a um, he was Andy Strassmeyer's roommate. He basically lived with Andy Strassmeyer at LOM City. And so um, when we get into our next figure here, that's probably the one I'll talk about. And I'll go into 
kind of he's linked to the bombing almost in the same way that Guthrie is. Yeah, I guess real quick, I did want to kind of touch on a couple things. Yeah, uh, just to more just to state it for the audience, uh, just a reminder of the Roger Moore aspect of the fingerprints. Yes. Uh, obviously, he was uh, proposed as to almost be a hapless victim, is the way he was characterized in the official narrative. Uh, although uh, I don't remember which episode it was in the series, but we definitely covered him in depth for those who uh, recall. Uh, if it's your first one, I'd suggest going back through the entire series and watching its entirety. I don't remember which one it is, episode but yes, he, three, I think three. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that sounds right. And it was like two to four ish. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, there's definitely a lot more going on there. Do you want to point out as well? Donald, or I guess I got, I got a little ahead of myself there. Peter Langan, who later becomes Donna Langan. We touched on that in my bonus episode with Ken Silva. Uh, so the, uh, the individual that was, uh, you know, I guess kind of in a sense heading up in a, a sense, the Aryan movement with, uh, with Guthrie in a sense. Um, I'm not sure who the official leaders were, but uh, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting story for sure. Uh, I did want to ask you before we moved on, because I think a big part of this story uh, of the characters and, and just the OKC in general is, what is real and what is uh, what is theater? Um, you know, uh, is there anything at all to suggest that maybe Guthrie is not who he presents himself as? It seems to me he's just a legit, uh, you know, straight and out, uh, out and out uh, white supremacist with nothing to suggest otherwise. Uh, yeah, that's a good question um, because Richard Lee Guthrie was very, very intelligent and very devious. Um, he and, uh, at that time, his name was Peter Langan, uh, were the founders of the Aryan Republican Army. And what's interesting about Guthrie is uh, the special forces thing where he was going to become a Navy SEAL and washed out. And it looks real similar to what happened with McVeigh. And um, also, I am, he attended flight training school at Embry-Riddle University. Um, that, that's interesting. And there's not a whole lot of information out there about that, but I saw that in his military records. And it's not something that goes, that's gone into in great detail in that book in Bad Company. And there is certainly the possibility, uh, sure, that Richard Lee Guthrie could have been more than what he presented himself as. But I don't see any direct evidence of that um, in fact, it uh, seems to be to the opposite, to the contrary, because of the types of crimes he was carrying out, um, the violence and the um, just the level the, uh, of, of his crimes. It seems unlikely that he would have been working in any official capacity. Um, however, we do know that the Aryan Republican Army did have people in it who are snitches. And we don't know at this point who they were. Okay, so it could be that one of them is Guthrie. Uh, could be these other guys that are in the group. So that's still an outstanding question. And it's one that I think that we need to know more answers to. Um, definitely an interesting question. Yeah, I, uh, I finally got to uh, doing, uh, doing the audiobook. I say reading, but that's just, it, it's colloquially speaking, reading. Uh, um, Trevor Aronson's book, uh, was it a, a terror factory kind of making the case of how the feds create so much things. And he's not necessarily making the point that we're kind of maybe sort of alluding to in, in here as a possibility, but he does make the case that a lot that, that it's so often that the FBI will, 
um, you know, take someone who doesn't have the means or the ability or anything to become a terrorist and they will provide everything for them, essentially put it in their hands and then make them do the, or not make them, but kind of uh, push them uh, subtly to do the act and then they'll do it. And they're like, Oh, we gotcha. Um, and uh, one thing that really did strike me when I was going through there is the, how inf it works with informants and the, and how it's very common and the feds even know uh, there's like sayings in the FBI about, you know, like the, uh, to, to catch the devil, you got to go to hell is one, like one saying, I guess is common in there. The kind of idea of the kind of people they recruit are typically unsavory people. And they will, uh, you know, people who have a rap sheet or are currently in the middle of doing crime, as long as it serves their ends, they will do it. Absolutely. So, yeah, Absolutely. So. That's a great point. And yeah. I completely agree with that. You see that right now with, you know, the, with the Whitmer plot, and like with things that Brandon Caserta has been talking about recently, you know, like he was on a podcast the other day mm -hmm. and he talked about how um, in Michigan, all of these so-called militia groups were all organized and ran by the FBI and, you know, created by FBI informants. And very much what you described just there regarding Aronson's thesis is exactly right. Wendy Painting cites an excellent couple of excellent studies in her book, Aberration of the Heartland of the Real, that talks about uh, in the wake of 9-11, hundreds of foiled so-called terror plots uh, were examined. And as it turns out, it's exactly what you said. They'll find some guy and give him the means, the opportunity, the money, the bomb, everything. They provide all of it. Whereas if you take them, the FBI out of the equation, you have a guy who is not committing any crimes, you know, and so that that's completely their MO. And given that we know that's their MO and that's the way they've been behaving for years, ever since uh, even back in the 60s and 70s with COINTELPRO, it's only evolved. Mm -hmm. And so I certainly think that we might be seeing the tip of the iceberg with that with Oklahoma City. Yeah. Uh, and I did want to point out too, you said that like being a snitch and the kind of the point I was getting at is maybe he wasn't even a snitch because the point, like he still could have been uh, maybe informant won't be the right word, but some sort of someone working for the feds to some regard. Uh, Cause the point I was getting at is they will have some sort of mission or objective and basically anything else they are willing to kind of shun off and even help these individuals get out of, you know, whether it be legal troubles or mon monetary troubles and to be able to get whatever mission they are looking to get done accomplished. So he, yeah. he could have been a fully committed Aryan movement individual and they could have presented it in a way that, you know, was not going to conflict with his mission whatsoever. And, right. you know, and be like, Hey, but we want you to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, I don't know what, but the point being is it's not outside the realm of possibilities, especially when you start understanding the kind of things they have done in the past and the type of things they're willing to look over and even facilitate them of getting out to. I did want to add the additional point that a lot of people don't realize the in intense uh, monetary incentives that are given to uh, to informants. Oh, God. Yeah. Like it's crazy because they take these people who are usually in uh, sometimes in monetary problems, criminal issues. Uh, sometimes a lot of times they'll, they'll prey on people in the immigration process and they will, you know, essentially, you know, say with immigration, they'll commonly be like, hey, we'll deport you if you don't you know, play along. 
uh, or you know, and even then on top of that. But if you do play long, you get you'll get fifty thousand, however many dollars, if we get a conviction, or even sometimes they don't get a conviction. I've seen hundreds yeah. of thousands of yeah. dollars over years. Like that, the guy who I don't recall his name, but he worked for this book publishing company, publishing these really radical books, and he was an FBI asset, and he was paid something like more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. And you know, same thing with this guy who supposedly tried to uh, kill George W. Bush down in Texas. Uh, for that, they bought the plane tickets, they paid for the hotel stay, and they gave this guy like thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, whatever they can do to make things happen, if that means giving money, if that means recruiting criminals, if that means using criminals to boost the bona fides of your front group, all of those things are not beyond uh, the FBI. That's their MO. That's what they will do. Yeah, I know I was talking to Brandon on a recent episode, and he was pointing out, I forget which one of the informants it was, but they made well over six figures in a six-month period of time, wow. which I, I mean, most people, I'd say the majority of people would betray every, damn near every principle they have for a six-figure paycheck over six months. So, like, uh, you know, say somebody like this, he could have been a fully committed to the cause Aryan individual and be like, hey, we'll give you, you know, 50000 100000 however much. And like, oh, okay, you know, like, and I can still keep doing everything I was doing. Oh, okay. Like, absolutely. And he so. would have been, he would have loved that. He would have been on board with it. Another approach they could have taken is one of these agents just could have pretended like, Hey, I'm an Aryan. I'm on your side. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm on the inside, you know, yeah. and they could have taken that approach. Who knows? Yes. But ultimately we can't say we know that for sure, but I'm not going to rule it out because exactly. we know how the, the feds play, which is dirty. And one thing I think we should mention here is that one of the FBI's, um, I guess I want to say like, he wasn't really an informant. He was more like an an operative, I guess, a guy who did things for them and pretended to be um, a patriot. His name was John Matthews. And John Matthews, you know, he was part of PatCon and he was one of their undercover guys. And uh, he has an email, which I have a copy of this email. It's an email that he sent to his FBI handler, Don Jarrett. And he was talking to Don Jarrett and he said, um, he said, I, I recall we had a front group called VAM, V-A-M or Veterans Aryan Movement. He said, there was another one I think called the ARA. Do you, and he says, you know, does that jibe with you? And his, um, his handler, Don Jarrett, an FBI you know, agent responded, and confirmed and said, yes, those were FBI front groups. Now that was, that blew me away because having read in bad company, you get a picture of a group of white supremacist terrorists. You don't see any, any guiding hands from the FBI, which is, which it doesn't mean they're not there. But, you know, when I look at what Don Jarrett said and said that this is an FBI front group and he even the, the name of, of one of the agents who supposedly was interfacing with the Aryan Republican Army and, and handling them was supposedly a guy named Dave Rossi, R-O-S-S-I. I don't know a lot about him. This all a lot of this information is tied up right now in Jesse Trinidad's lawsuit because it, some of this information is in uh, John Matthews. Uh, depositions, which are under seal. And when those come out, we're going to have some, I think, stunning revelations here. And I think that some of them are going to reveal that the ARA 
definitely was more than what it seemed. And when we couple that with, with what we talked about on episodes two and three about Andy Strassmeyer and Roger Moore driving the plot and driving the bombing, okay, you've got fed you got feds there. And then if you've got involved on the ground level, the members of the ARA, which we know are in some way tied to the feds based upon what this FBI agent is saying, that right there is all a huge red flag. And I think this will stand the test of time. Uh, this in, We're only going to know more information in the future. We're going to have Matthews's depositions. We're going to get more information out of Wendy's the next book, which is going to be fantastic. Nobody's a better researcher than her. And I'm sure that she's just going to uncover more. And I believe that all of this will be further built upon. And we'll know more about it in the future. And looking back at this, we're going to see what we were on the right track. Yeah. Oh, I did want to point out one more point that I was kind of getting at. This is something I also gleaned from Trevor Aronson's book, because and this kind of applies to what we're talking about with Guthrie here, because I think a lot of people make the point that, hey, well, he ended up going to prison. Uh, he ended up dying, you know, under weird circumstances. Surely uh, there's no way he had any Fed connections whatsoever. There's no way. And a lot of people might make that uh, conclusion. I, I can get it. That's a, I can I can understand that logic. I'm not even saying that's necessarily bad logic. But once you start looking into this, you'll see. Uh, when you do a deep dive in how informants and stuff work, there are plenty of occasions where I did just allude to they will get them out of trouble when it, when they need to. But oh, that's also, right. They that's were right. On, the, on the flip side, there are just as many occasions where even when these informants think they're doing something towards the ends, where sometimes the feds will just let them, you know, take the fall or whatever, because uh, whether or or they will commit some sort of other criminal act outside of it. And this time they won't bail them out because I don't know whether it's uh, maybe they think they're at a point where I don't know, they don't have the sway or it would ruffle too many feathers or they've exceeded their usefulness or there could be a million different reasons where they just go, Oh, well, never mind. You know, uh, okay. Uh, well, you know, I guess you go to prison now. That's the end of it. You know uh, it's, it's not, you know, so the, my point being is tr people trying to read the tea leaves and, and using what, what is common logic. I'm not even trying to condemn anyone using that type of logic. It's not necessarily a the most uh, dependable logic because there are just as many occasions where they will throw their informants to the wolves. Absolutely. Uh, they yeah. are disposable. Ab they are. And one thing I, that you mentioned that, that caused me to uh, remind me of something I'd like to mention here is that when you're talking about how uh, the feds will get these people out of trouble and that sort of thing, um, one of the associates of the ARA was a gentleman by the name of Sean Kinney. And he was an Aryan Nations member. He helped plan several of the ARA bank robberies. He knew Richard Lee Guthrie, and he was instrumental in Guthrie's capture. Um, this guy uh, was—he—he uh, was—they got him out of trouble. They got Sean Kinney out of trouble. He—he um, he had some felonies. He had uh, some uh, uh, criminal record. He had uh, neo-Nazi tattoos all over both of his arms, and for what he did. For the FBI, the FBI, basically, they expunged some of his criminal record, and that was testified to by a, a police officer named Matthew Moaning. Uh, this police officer was on Sean Kenny's ass, and he, he had it in for this guy. He knew he was a, a criminal, and he was absolutely appalled uh, that the feds were... Uh, getting him out of hot water, and he filed an affidavit about that. And so he filed, and this was about the expungement uh, of Kenny's criminal record. Now, Kenny also 
molested an 11 year old family member. Okay. And like I'd mentioned, these Nazi tattoos, the reason all of these things are important is that Sean Kinney went into the United States Army and served in Iraq. And the only way he was able to do that and to get into the army and serve in Iraq is because the FBI paid for laser removal of his tattoos, expunged his criminal record, and saw to it that the molestation charges on what is a child uh, were not sufficient enough to, I guess, to get him in, in trouble. And so this is a guy who had all the strings pulled. If there was any other guy who tried to go and enlist and he's a multi-time convicted felon with neo-Nazi tattoos all over him and a sex offender, they're going to kick his ass out. Instead, this guy got the royal treatment, you know. And so, they, yeah, they do help the people yeah. who one, one hand washes the other. Yeah. And to point out another example, I, I just recently read Chaos by Tom O'Neill. And he made the point, this is, he documented it well. I don't even think this is above, uh, you know, this is beyond uh, criticism uh, or, or this is a, uh, this is basically beyond criticism in my, in my opinion, from how well he documented it. Uh, essentially uh, Manson's, uh, what was it? His, uh, what's it called when you get out of jail? I forget. His parole uh, officer. Parole officer got so many of his, like essentially his girls and Manson out of multiple, multiple yes. uh, uh, criminal issues. And times just that he would cause him to violate his parole. He pulled mm -hmm. the strings to make sure he wasn't violated. Yeah. And there were, I think, multiple or at least one that was like highly documented of of yes. his girls. Uh, you know that he would, you know, they would get in some legal trouble, and he would come to the judge, and a lot of times not even tell them he was a parole officer. He'd be some other, you know, to them he's a reputable government worker. You know, a high ranking parole officer that's you know speaking on behalf of this person, saying how great they are, and would get them out of trouble multiple times. So they were basically above. They were damn near. Uh, criminally immune in a, in a sense so this yes. is not this is a thing that happens it, uh but yeah let's i guess we can keep going on about this, this is a fun aspect of the topic uh but let's move into brescia and talk about okay. him and what he's about yeah so michael brescia he was another member of the air and republican army and uh you know committed some of these uh, bank robberies he was andy strassmeyer's roommate at elohim city so when he wasn't robin banks he was uh there staying with andy so he knew Strassmeyer very well. Um, Brescia, by is thought to be by a lot of people, they think he's John Doe too. I have reasons to believe that I I don't think that he is. Uh, not at least the guy who's in the drawing. I don't think that's him. Can you but, can you describe his build real quick? Because that's the big thing. Uh, right, you know, right. So he didn't have a big muscular build. You know, he. I mean, like me. You know, just skinny guy he didn't, didn't didn't look really big was he a darker um, complexion fella or no no he oh, okay. wasn't um <laughs> they're going off of like his face i guess and like his dark hair but I, I look at it and i'm like sure he, he's not big enough he's not heavy enough um he's not dark complected why are you saying this it's not him um, but a lot of people think he is but regardless of that I don't believe that um, you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think we should say, okay, that means he had nothing to do with it. Cause that's, that's certainly not the case. He certainly could have something to do with it. And I believe this whole crew was, and you, you look at the witness accounts that I've talked about and you have at least three or four people seen with Tim McVeigh in the days leading up to the bombing and uh, on the way there to Oklahoma city and in Oklahoma city, he's with a group, he's with a group of guys. And so, 
this this group, the ARA, certainly fits the bill for that. And Michael Brescia is one of those people. Now, um, uh, Brescia, uh, similar to the others, is a, a neo-Nazi figure. Um, he uh, went and he was at LaSalle University, and he just all of a sudden uh, goes from being this preppy guy who's in a fraternity to all seemingly overnight, all of a sudden, he's a neo-Nazi. He's wearing bomber jackets. He's got his head shaved. He's dropping out of LaSalle, and he's packing up his car and driving to Elohim City. I personally, and I haven't heard other researchers say this, but I, I think that looks really suspicious. This is a guy on a college campus. Now, all of a sudden, he's Mr. Radical, and he's going straight to the heart of the movement. How the hell does some student at LaSalle University know about Elohim City? And, and how does he get the introduction to go there? Now, my suspicion was, and this is complete speculation, I just want to lay that out right now, but I thought my suspicion was that he might have been sent as backup for, for Andy Strassmeyer. He might have been sent there to be someone, uh, another agent, to go and be there with Strassmeyer. You said he was um, a college kid, though, right? He was a college kid. That's okay. right. He was a college kid at LaSalle University. And all of a sudden on campus, he goes from being this guy, this kid in college to uh, now he's Mr. Nazi. And so certainly, I guess it could happen. People go through transformations. That kind of thing happens. But I just found it suspicious that he went straight to Elohim City from college. But regardless of whether that's true or not, and I'm sure maybe we'll find out possibly more later, um, he was, from all uh, accounts, a true believer. He, he did seem to really believe all of this stuff. Um, he uh, robbed these you know, various banks with the ARA. He was uh, captured like the others, but for the longest time, uh, the Fed seemed to have no interest in Brescia. He was back in Pennsylvania. He had an accounting job, a job there as an accountant uh, for a computer firm. Um, the Feds knew exactly where he was. And here, this is a guy who's robbed like five banks. He's a fugitive. Um, he's described as a fugitive in FBI documents. And in fact, posters were put up in his neighborhood uh, by uh, some members of uh, uh, well, a guy named um, uh, John Vanderbo or Mike Vanderbo. Mike Vanderbo is the leader of a group, um, this militia group. Uh, he was like one of the good guys, though, type militia guys. He put up these posters that said, um, uh, Michael Brescia, John Doe number two, unwanted by the FBI. And it had his picture on the posters and he put them up in his neighborhood and he published uh, this newsletter online that uh, whenever stories would come out in the paper about the ARA or about Mike Brescia, which at that time his name was appearing in J.D. Cash's articles, he would recirculate those on the internet. So basically in 96, there was all this pressure to um, to, to arrest Mike Brescia because people are saying this guy is a terrorist. He's a robber. He might be involved with the bombing. How come you're not arresting him? So what's interesting is that um, Janet Reno drops the uh, arrest warrant for John Doe number two the same day that the FBI stakes out Michael Brescia's employer and takes him into custody. And I thought that was interesting that that, that happened, and rather um, coincidence or not. 
Um, so yeah, he's basically a guy who we think might have been involved in the bombing. Definitely knew Andy Strassmeyer, so he would have been privy to this plot that Strassmeyer was fomenting. They lived in the same room, you know, and, and were buddies. I'm sure they talked about it together. I'm sure Brescia talked about the banks he robbed, just like Strassmeyer probably talked about, you know, our plan that what we're going to do to this federal building. And so uh, he ultimately uh, was. He started cooperating with authorities on the bank robberies, and he he fully cooperated, apologized, said he renounced you know uh, his his neo-Nazi beliefs, and he ended up serving something like three and a half or four years maybe, whereas the other people in the ARA like uh, Pete Langan got a life sentence, you know Guthrie found dead in prison. His Scott Steddeford got, four, I think, something like 35 or 40 years, uh, but Kevin McCarthy got only like uh, three or four years, and Mike Brescia got three or four years. Now, I know where Mike Brescia lives, okay? I have his address. I know where he lives. Um, I have recent photos of him, and he's a person I would like to interview. I have been, not been able to reach him. Uh, he's not responded to my inquiries. He has never... Uh, in, been interviewed by anyone. He's never talked about um, the ARA. And what one interesting thing is that uh, me and uh, Roger Charles did a background check on Mike Brescia. And what we found was amazing, uh, something we had both never seen before. And that is that his criminal record, his criminal record does not have bank robbery on it anywhere. All we found was a traffic violation, and we know it's the same Mike Brescia. Uh, we got um, Roger had his social security number that he got from JD Cash in order to run this report. Um, and so we ran this background check and found, oddly enough, uh, that bank robbery isn't on there. Now, recall I, uh, how I talked about what the FBI did for Sean Kinney, they expunged his criminal record. Well, did they do that for Mike Brescia too? Did they expunge his criminal record for his cooperation? Is that why he only served three years in prison? And is that why uh, now he, he or he's been out of prison for a very long time? I, I've seen his home. It's beautiful. He has a very nice home. Uh, it strikes me as a guy who's doing really good for a convicted felon who in any job interview would have to talk about how he was a member of the Aryan Republican Army and robbed banks for a living. I mean, how does he have such a, a good living? Maybe he, he has a uh, personal business, uh, something like that. But ultimately, there's a lot of red flags with this guy. Um, he's a person we all want to talk to. And Jesse Trinity told me, if you plan on going to see uh, Mike Brescia, um, you better bring a gun. That's what he told me. And yeah. I think Jesse was talking about the fact that we think that he might not actually technically be a felon and might be allowed to own a firearm because his criminal record does not come up. Yeah. Uh, you know, being on the, the nice home and the weird change, all of this, uh, you know, makes all my conspiracy mind go informant, informant, informant. Absolutely. Uh, it's very weird. You know, the college thing for like that, the college thing does make me think kind of rule out fed yeah. or, or out and out fed. Cause it's like, you didn't really even have enough time as an adult male to really even become one. Uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're in college, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, recruiting on college campuses, but you're yeah. right. I mean, that's correct. He wouldn't have any background in law enforcement. Yeah. Or I mean, my, like my thought is, I don't know, maybe he raped a chick or something in college. And then all of a sudden, you know, guess what? Uh, you can do this uh, and we'll, we'll reward you handsomely or you can rot in a prison cell. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, that being the nice home and no criminal record, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know we brought up how informants get easily get six figures. You know, I don't know if you're a smart man with six figures and no uh, given to you in a lump sum and no uh, and no criminal record. You can, uh, you know, a smart man can make a make something out of that invest in a business, what have you. I don't know. Sure. You can make a, make a lot out of that. So. Uh, and, and a lot of times these informants come back and do it again and again and again. Uh, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it, that is that is quite quite the story. Uh, I mean, I kind of wish we had more on him for sure. I wish you know I I did I I wish I had more on him as well. He's a figure that's very interesting that we want to talk to, and for people who are interested about this, I suggest that they again they read a book called In Bad Company, and there's also um, a, a good uh, decent. Um, documentary i wanted to mention uh, this uh, because i've had some people who have been watching these episodes contact me and uh, they told me they really liked the, the episodes and they liked the book recommendations which i recommended roger's book and wendy's book so i thought on this episode i wanted to uh, do another recommendation and that is uh, there's this book called the final report by the Oklahoma Bombing Investigative Committee. That's the final report, and that came out in 2001. That is another book you've got to get for the Oklahoma City bombing. So for anybody watching and who talked about those uh, book recommendations, that's one. And I also want to recommend a couple documentaries. One of them is, is a BBC documentary, um, and it was called, uh, um, what do they call it, BBC, the BBC Conspiracy conspiracy files the oklahoma city bombing kind of a um sensationalist name but it was a very good production and so the bbc conspiracy files you can find it on things like BitChute and odyssey and it goes all into carol howe in the Aryan republican army and so people who are interested in that can check that out and also if you go to the libertarianinstitute.org okc um, you can, if you search there for Brescia, you're going to find a whole bunch of my primary sources um, that mention him. It's mostly newspaper articles where you see stuff about Brescia, but there are some hard-hitting pieces that were done on him and a lot of people who think he was involved. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the Arizona connections and let's start out with Michael Fortier. Uh, yes. So Michael Fortier basically was an army buddy of uh, Tim McVeigh. He served with him in the army and they maintained friendship after the army. And whenever uh, uh, McVeigh was traveling around the country, he would uh, stop often in Kingman, Arizona, which is where Fortier lived. And so he'd stop there and he'd stay with Michael Fortier and he became friends with Michael and Lori Fortier. And so they were buddies. And uh, Fortier real, involved. Real quick before yeah. you keep going, I, the the obvious question I, I want to ask before we get further along is, uh, was Fortier an other individual that kind of went down the same path as McVeigh? Because I know the big thing with McVeigh was was he sheep dip? Was he like a, spe- a special forces dropout, no. quote unquote? No. Okay. Right. Not an was, elite soldier. Okay. He was just okay. a regular soldier. And then he got out. But while he was in, he did hold some beliefs that aligned with McVeigh. Um, some beliefs that I guess I, I would I would describe them as like. Maybe even just libertarian, you know, he had like a don't tread on me flag in his yard. That's 48. You know, he was just a guy who wanted to be left alone. Um, he was not as extreme as McVeigh, I don't think. Uh, but regardless, he was buddies with him. And uh, but I don't view him as someone who was 
any kind of special asset or anything. Okay. But he did he did get involved in the bombing, most certainly. McVeigh got him involved. McVeigh, uh, they robbed a National Guard um, base. They stole things from this National Guard base. They uh, robbed, uh, or that is, he robbed a quarry with uh, Terry Nichols. And then, uh, so he'd started doing similar things with Fortier, and that was trying to steal things in Kingman and for military bases, which is interesting is PatCon, part of PatCon was investigating theft of items from military bases. Meanwhile, McVeigh and Fortier are doing this. And then after um, the robbery of Roger Moore, when all the firearms were stolen, um, Michael Fortier was enlisted by McVeigh to help sell these firearms. And some of them he gave to Fortier. He said, I'll give you this AR-15 or whatever. I'll give you this and if you can sell the rest. And so Fortier did help. He provided material support to the bombing plot. Also, uh, whenever um, McVeigh and Fortier were together um, on the road, they were traveling and they went through Oklahoma City uh, and Tim McVeigh showed him the Murrah building and told him about the bombing and told him this is the target and everything. And they stopped and they actually went some places and were witnesses were uh there are witnesses who saw them together. So the bottom line is, I think Michael Fortier was far more involved than he has admitted to. And what happened here is because the government decided to get rid of all of the eyewitnesses, they in turn then relied entirely upon Mike Fortier as their star witness and Roger Moore as their star witness. And so because this guy, Mike Fortier, is their star witness, um, they are not going to implicate him in the bombing plot. Right. And in return for being their star witness, he got he did get like 10 years. But on the other hand, when he got out of prison, uh, the feds put him in the witness protection program. So no researchers can ever contact him. You know, no one can ever ask him any questions or hold his feet to the fire on this. And he's another person that I think a lot of us would like to talk to because he knows a lot more than was ever uh, put into the record, you know. Yeah. Uh, one question that I thought of while you were talking about him is you, you said he was kind of almost a libertarian type, kind of sounds like your standard militia type is kind of how I see it. So for, him to, get, yeah, for him to get embroiled in this, it kind of seems weird because uh, nothing uh, really flags it. So I'm wondering, is there anything to imply maybe he was along the lines of a Nichols type? Because my impl implication with Nichols, maybe he was almost like a Nichols type that kind of was uh, didn't get completely fucked over uh, in, in a sense. Um, got lucky, a little bit luckier than Nichols. May, is there anything to imply? Maybe they had something to him, or maybe he was scared. Or uh, I don't think know, he. Yeah, know? I don't think he was scared. But there is one thing that stands out to me that he testified to. Um, he was asked, and I, I think this was during the Nichols trial. He was asked. He said, uh, uh, "Mr. Fortier, you said that if you testified about Timothy McVeigh's accomplices, you feared." Um, you feared reprisals from the Aryan community. Is that correct? Or, you know, the, the white supremacist community. And he answered that is correct. And so I think he knew uh, that some of the others who were involved in this were very dangerous. Um, so there was some fear there. On the other hand, I don't, I don't view him as like Nichols. He wasn't a pushover. I think he was just a guy who McVeigh was his buddy. It was his friend. And when his friend told him about this stuff, they seemed or 48 seemed to have kind of got cold feet and didn't want to participate. But on the other hand, he didn't go to the authorities. He didn't tell them anything. He didn't stop it from happening. He did help with the sale of stolen firearms. So there is some complicity there. Okay. 
All right, yeah, that's uh, definitely. Uh, I believe I, I feel like I remember more about him because uh, I know he's he's in witness protection now, right? Did, yes. did he, I think there was something weird with his wife or something. I I, I don't recall. Maybe well, you, what you're know. thinking of, I think, is is, ter- is that Tim McVeigh showed his wife Lori Nichols. He he had soup cans in her kitchen, mm-hmm. and he arranged these soup cans to show her how he was going to arrange the the barrels and the bomb. You know, okay. and these were guys who um, they were young. They were not very, you know, they they were, they just made a stupid choice of hanging around the wrong people. If they hadn't been hanging around, you know, with Tim McVeigh or some of these other people, they never would have got into this. And they just made poor choices. And, uh, you know, maybe there was a character problem there. You know, yeah. I know they had drug problems like, you know, 48 did use, you know, use meth. And uh, obviously that implies a character flaw. Um, so I don't think that he's a guy who is a murderer, but I do think he's a guy who he has, he bears some responsibility and I think that he should answer some questions Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of questions for him. And I I just think that he should come forward. That that would be the right thing to do. Yeah, this reminds me to bring up, uh, I guess, because it's fresh in my mind. Maybe that's why I'm thinking of it. The uh, the uh, Trevor Aronson book. There was an individual in there that they got the feds hemmed up on, like assisting, uh, you know, terrorists or some shit. And the informant uh, essentially showed him like a rocket launcher and said that this was to be used for uh, something or other, and to be I forget which uh, specific terrorist group he was saying he was providing it to. And the guy didn't report it, didn't do anything. And at some point they got him on some nonsense because the guy gave him a loan and they, they, they tried to characterize it as money laundering. But mm-hmm. then later when they talked to him, because a lot of people brought up like, hey, why didn't you ever report this? And he right. was like, apparently the informant had said something about having FBI associates earlier on. And so in his head, he was like, oh, well, this guy has something to do with the FBI, uh, I'm assuming. And, you know, anyone who has any, you know, decent grasp on foreign policy knows how often we supply different uh different terrorist groups or whatever obviously they don't call them terrorist groups when they give it to them at that point they're moderate rebels or whatever the hell uh but you know a week from then they can be a terrorist group it just depends on the whims of the uh of the state department but the point being is that he was like well i didn't say anything because i thought this was it seemed to me this would be something completely up and up like why would i report this if this guy's telling me he has fed associates he's related right. to the feds and he's you know right. fed stuff and because that was kind of a point that the uh the uh the the attorneys used against him uh and yeah and that kind of reminds me that makes me think that that's also a possibility of if he somehow had knowledge of somehow maybe some sort of connections of mcveigh oh right yeah he could think oh well he's you know this is some you know part of his job is you know he could have you know he could have thought that that just again is another one of those questions that we would have for 48 Mm -hmm. um questions to him about what do you know about the bank robberies because that he was asked about those in multiple fbi interviews so the fbi thought he knew something about it the fact that he said he feared reprisals from white supremacist and Aryans, there's a reason he said that it's not just like all of a sudden he's afraid of nazis you know there's a reason he's afraid of nazis if he talks about mcveigh's associates because they were nazis so he definitely knows something and uh it's hard to say what his motives were. And until he talks, you know, we won't really know. We can only speculate. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's last one. Jack Oliphant. Uh, tell me about him. He's a very interesting character. Um, Jack Oliphant was in the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA. Um, he then, uh, well, according to him, he was then in the CIA 
and he says that he killed people for them. And I have FBI documents. Um, shout out to Skeptical Spice on Twitter uh, for some of these. She got a hold of a nice batch of Jack Oliphant documents, and a couple of them say that uh, uh, they have Jack Oliphant talking about how he uh, served uh, as an assassin, basically, for the CIA. That's very weird, very uncommon. Uh, but there are newspaper articles around the time of his death and shortly before his death in 1995 that cite his connection to the CIA. And so it's in the it's very, very it's right there in some newspaper articles. It's in FBI documents. So if we're to go based on that, maybe he did. Maybe he did. There's some other real shady stuff with his involvement with people who were involved in the Kennedy assassination, if you can believe that. And that I, I don't know a whole lot about, but I, there are other researchers out there who I know are going to plumb that. And I know Wendy's going to go into it in her next book. It's going to be great. But suffice to say, this guy is very unusual. So Jack Oliphant um, in the 70s had like a sort of a cult in Florida and then in Arizona that was called the Hallelujah People. And it was sort of like a Christian uh, type cult, I guess. And uh, I don't know a whole lot about it other than that there were some newspaper articles published about the Hallelujah People and about how they had a whole group of, of people on this ranch. It was like a commune and very weird stuff. And then after the whole cult period, which is in the 70s, um, in the 1980s, he got um, he started forming this militia called the Arizona Patriots. And this is in the early 80s, that around the time of the order, he's forming the Arizona Patriots. The Arizona Patriots had like a celebrity member, some guy from a TV, uh, some Western. He was a I think his name was Ty, T-Y, Ty something. I can't remember the guy's name now, but he was on some Western in the 60s or 70s. And he, so he was a big time, big TV star. And he was a member of uh, this Arizona Patriots. Well, the Arizona Patriots uh, planned to rob an armored car. And they started becoming a target of the FBI and a target of an FBI undercover operation. And they captured on audio and, you know, they got all the evidence that Olivant is planning this armored car robbery. And he was busted and he went to jail. And if you ask Olivant, he's quoted in the paper saying like that he, he just pled guilty because um, the feds were going to um, charge his wife. And he said that he, he pled guilty so he could save his wife. But ultimately, he did plead guilty to go to jail for this Arizona Patriots uh, robbery type deal. He is largely viewed um, in the 1980s and 90s as being like this guy, just like the order, just like the ARA, uh, white supremacist, far right wing, uh, supports terrorism. Um, very unusual figure. Um, what we do know is that he lived in the in Arizona, uh, in the Kingman area, same area that uh, Fortier was in, in McVeigh. And we know that about a week prior to the Oklahoma City bombing, a group of guys, which included McVeigh and I think Fortier and some others, uh, showed up at Oliphant's ranch. So it's a week before the bombing. These guys are at Oliphant's ranch. They're meeting. And they're talking about something big that's coming up, something big that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And so definitely, obviously, they're talking about the bombing. 
Um, we know this because an FBI agent named Lee Fabrizio, an agent out of Arizona, talked to J.D. Cash and talked to some other newspaper reporters about it. This FBI agent, Lee Fabrizio, strongly believes uh, that Jack Oliphant was involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. And so he had um, uh, every reason, I guess, to talk about this. That's what was his motive for talking about it with J.D. is because he thinks this guy was involved. So this guy Fabrizio goes and he interviews Jack Oliphant's widow, Margot. Um, in uh, 1995, Oliphant died in like, I'm going to say November or December of 95. So he goes out and interviews Margot and Margot admits. Real quick, how did he yeah. die? Because uh, I know there's so many. Just, deaths, you know, just it considered heart attack. I mean, he was yeah. old. He was like in his, yeah. you know, 70s. Figured, um, but... but it's interesting that it's 95. The bombing happens. And then immediately in the newspaper, his name's being thrown around. There are at least four or five articles mentioning Oliphant. And then by the fall, he's dead. Uh, but he was, you know, he was old. Um, and so. Margot is interviewed by Lee Fabrizio, and she admits, yeah, McVeigh was here. She called him Timmy. She even called him Timmy, like, in a very friendly way and said that she made breakfast for him several times. That implies he stayed for several days. She made breakfast for him. And uh, in that same article, uh, J.D. Taught, JD writes about the meeting at Oliphant's ranch a week before the bombing. Now, I know that Jack Oliphant is a huge figure in Wendy Painting's upcoming book, and I know she's done a great deal of research on him, very similar to the, what she did for Roger Moore. So if anybody out there is listening um, and you're interested in Oliphant, Wendy's going to cover it. Um, I have a whole bunch of FBI documents on him, as well as newspaper clippings that I put on my Google Drive. Uh, so if people are interested, they can find that. They can also find, if they just search Oliphant, O-L-I-P-H-A-N-T, on my um, Institute, Libertarian Institute Archive, uh, you'll find other stuff on him. But about the only thing I can say with any certainty is there was this meeting supposedly at his ranch a week before the bombing and McVeigh was there and Margot admits that she, that McVeigh was there. So that's interesting. All right. Uh, I do want to let people know that are, you know, following this series, uh, some of this information, uh, you know, that th seems to be a lot of stuff that may come out later. I do fully intend on, you know, whether it's with you, Richard, or if it's with somebody else, you know, maybe I can get Wendy or someone. Uh, if there is, you know, new information that comes out later, I intend on, you know, uh, you know, covering it. So, you Great. know, you, I mean, you can always let me know, Richard, and then open and open, you know, I'm always, you know, looking to have more to add to this. I'll add it. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, as long as I still have a YouTube channel, there'll be the playlist that has all of this uh, stuff in there. So, you know, if there's any new content, it'll be in there. Uh, you know, that way in one spot you can find it. If you're watching on audio, if you're listening on audio, I don't think there's really a way to do playlists on those things. So it is what it is. But I don't know, if you like to listen to it, you can go to YouTube and then go find it elsewhere on the uh, on the audio. But whatever, what have you. I just want to let people know that, that uh, with there being a lot of stuff that, you know, is still coming out, uh, Jesse Trinidu, a big guy, is still another person out, you know, always on the crusade looking for new information and has stuff that's just waiting to drop because it's so much, it's so much of it's held up in litigation. Yep. So, you know, uh, just to let people know if there will, you know, I'll, I mean, I think we probably have after this episode, maybe one, maybe two more, because uh, we'll probably start going to some of the juicy uh, stuff like, uh, you know, trying to do his brother, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, geeky, which is what, you know, kind of caused me to go down this crusade myself. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll cover that. We probably have at least maybe one, two episodes left. Uh, but, you know, we will, uh, I will update it with more if, you know, when more information comes out. 
Uh, I got a, a super chat I want to bring up real quick. Uh, JC, thanks. JC says, another banger. I see you show up here a lot. I appreciate it. I see you too, Anna, Fire Pixie, a few of you other guys are here frequently. I appreciate you guys showing up. Uh, and I do really enjoy the series. Uh, this is, you know, I think it's great stuff that we're doing here. Uh, but last point that I want to touch on, I think you you were implying that you recently did an essay or, or, or wrote a piece on this, uh, kind of about prior knowledge. And uh, I kind of, you wanted to touch on that and kind of tie it back to John Doe, which uh, I, I think is, uh, you know, it would be cool. And I think it kind of fits here in the narrative very well. So uh, I'll let you have the floor. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, I'm, I was supposed to write an essay on prior knowledge and I have, I have some parts of it done, um, but it's just not in a finished state yet. And I'm really late on this. I was supposed to have this done beginning of September for Garrison. So ST, I'm sorry. I'm hoping to get it done soon. Um, but basically where this comes from is um, my mentor, Roger Charles, um, his book, you know, the, had a co-author named Andrew Gumbel. And Andrew Gumbel is like the wordsmith. He's the guy who writes the book. Roger Charles is like the document guy. He's the guy who digs up facts. He researches. He's not like Mr. Writer, right? And so he, he brings to the table the raw material. He tells Andrew this is what it is, and Andrew writes it, right? So one thing, though, is that the book was overseen by Gumbel, uh, Charles, and the editor. And in that configuration, so much of the time, Gumbel and the editor's vote overrided Rogers. And that's a tragedy because uh, that book, unfortunately, some people will even refer to it as a limited hangout, um, as if to say, like, it's intentional that he gets close to releasing some things and then doesn't do it, which I don't necessarily think is the case. My understanding is that there's a large bit of information that was in that book that was excised by the editor and Andrew Gumbel. And so I asked Roger, I said, what are some, what are the top three things that you wanted to get to in your book that you didn't? Because I intended to cover those. And one of them was the surveillance tapes. Okay. And so I did that piece. We talked about that. Another one was Pat Con. We've talked about that. And the third one was prior knowledge you know, knowing about people who knew about the bombing beforehand. And Roger, I think when he said that, was talking about the federal government. But when I look at prior knowledge, I look at everything. Who knew about this before it was going to happen? And what I found that was amazing is that there are at least four individuals who knew, and we can demonstrate this, knew that there was going to be something, or even in some cases knew there was going to be a bombing involving a truck bomb in a federal building on April 19, 1995. And what's amazing here is when you look at these four individuals, they all have a lot of things in common, okay? And we'll get into that. In addition to those four individuals, the only other folks you find who had prior knowledge are government agencies the ATF who is not at work at the Murrah Federal Building on April 19th, or the warning that the FBI made to the fire department shows that the FBI knew something. And so you have on the one hand, these four individuals who as it turns out are all white supremacists, and then you have the feds. And my theory is, what I, what I think is that prior knowledge can inform us as to who the other accomplices were. The only way you know about this before it happens is because you know the guy who's gonna do it and he's talked to you about it. 
and chances are good it's because you were involved in it, you know, because he was not just going to go around telling anybody and everybody. He was telling people that he was working with on this. And so I think prior knowledge can tell us why we don't know the name of John Doe too. I think it's because he was a Fed. Okay. And I think prior knowledge can tell us who were the other three or four people who were with McVeigh that day. I think it was white supremacists, the ARA. And so that's my theory. I think that's what we can learn from prior knowledge. And so when I get into this, what I have looked at are different examples, which you find here and there, a little bit covered in this article, a little bit covered there. And there's never been anything that's put it all in one place. So that's what I'm going to try to do. So we have a figure who's named Chevy Kehoe. Chevy Kehoe was a white supremacist who stayed at Elohim City all the time. He went there all the time. And he was there in the fall of 1995 when the bombing uh, plan was was organized by Andy Strassmeyer and Tim McVeigh. And uh, there is an FBI informant who was at Elohim City named John Schultz. And John Schultz said that, you know, he was taken there to EC by Chevy Kehoe. And he talks about in this document, it says that um, Schultz was in a meeting that had a gentleman, uh, a German speaking gentleman uh, or a German accented gentleman, which obviously is Andy Strassmeyer and Tim McVeigh. And they were talking about the delivery of a package. He says Ch Chevy Kehoe was in that meeting. OK, so he's there at least in one of the bombing planning meetings. He's also there at Elohim City at the time the bombing was planned. And at the same time, all the members of the ARA are there. So they all know each other. So fast forward to April 19th, 1995. Chevy Kehoe is in Spokane, Washington, is in Washington State. And he's staying in a place called the Shadows Motel, an RV park. It was like a motel and an RV RV park. And he's got an RV and he's staying there and he doesn't have a television. So he goes into the manager's office. The manager has a TV in there. He goes in there and it's um, it's specific time. So it's like what uh, before it was, it was at 8.30. So it's going to be 6.30 in the morning. He goes, he goes in there pretty early. Um, depending on who you are, but still pretty darn early, goes in the manager's office and asks him that he wants them to put on CNN. And so here's this neo-Nazi, probably never in his life watched, tele watched the news on TV. And he goes into April, on April 19th, 1995 at 8.30 in the morning, and he wants to sit there and watch CNN. So the guy obliged him, put on the TV, watch CNN. Chevy plunks himself down, sits there in front of the TV for 30 minutes, and then the bombing happens at 9.02 a.m. And within 10 or 15 minutes, it's on the news. Chevy starts hooting and hollering. He's, you know, jumping up and down. He's like, you know, celebrating. And this manager at the Shadows Motel and RV Park told the newspaper this. He told Bill Moreland from the Spokane Spokesman Review. Yeah, Chevy Kehoe came in here on April 19th asking to turn on CNN 30 minutes before the bombing. And when it happened, it seemed to be he knew it was going to happen. He started celebrating. And that was published in the newspaper. And the headlines were things like, you know, did McVeigh visit Spokane, uh, uh, Washington connection to bombing, uh, Kehoe uh, may have known bombers, things like that. So I've got a whole section of articles. If you search on the Libertarian Institute for Kehoe, K-E-H-O-E, you're going to find a whole bunch of excellent reporting by Bill Moreland that goes into the thing I just talked about. 
And so this is a person who I think had foreknowledge of the bombing because he was in one of the planning meetings in Elohim City in the fall of 94. And I believe he was also there with the ARA and he knew members of the ARA. Now, in addition to that, there was a study by the, uh, uh, there the, was a, uh, um, what do you call it? The Department of Justice paid for this study. It was a study done by some professors at, uh, I think, the University of Arkansas. And it was called Pre-Incident Indicators of Terrorist Activity, something like that. And uh, it was in the mid-2000s. And I read this study, and it has a whole section in it on Chevy Kehoe. And one of the things that uh, with Kehoe is that he murdered uh, this this gun dealer's family. He killed the gun dealer's wife and young daughter, murdered the whole family, stole a bunch of their guns, and he ultimately is serving life in prison now for that murder. And uh, in this um, study, it says that Chevy Kehoe, it's called the, the Mueller murders. It says that Chevy Kehoe carried out the Mueller murders as a contract for Andy Strassmeyer and Michael Brescia at Elohim City. They contracted Kehoe to murder this family because Mueller had lived at Elohim City in the fall of 95. And Mueller moved away because he felt they were too extreme. But he happened to live there when the bombing was being planned. And in this study, it says that it's believed that the Mueller's were murdered because they had knowledge about members of the ARA being involved in the Oklahoma City bombing and they had to be eliminated and Kehoe did murder them. And so these are things regarding Chevy Kehoe that are very interesting that do pertain to foreknowledge and possible involvement in the bombing. Um, I'd like to know more about him. He is not serving, he doesn't have a death penalty, he's got a life sentence, he's at Supermax. Um, the person who murdered the Mueller's with him did get the death penalty uh, and is, was executed, I wanna say, I think it was last year. Um, so that's just one person. And the, pe the other people who have foreknowledge are very similar to Chevy Kehoe. They all knew each other. Next one is going to be um, a guy named uh, Richard Wayne Snell. Richard Wayne Snell was affiliated with a group called the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord in the 80s. And he had planned to bomb the Murrah building on in uh, 1983. And ultimately, that plot fizzled out, didn't go through, and instead they tried to sabotage a natural gas pipeline in Fulton, Arkansas, and that was in 83-84. Um, then things, there's kind of a, a fork in the road here where, um, where, where uh, Snell uh, murders a pawnbroker and a state trooper in, I want to say it was 84, and he's arrested for those murders. And while he's awaiting trial or trial is ongoing, then the CSA, this group he was affiliated with, was raided by the FBI on April 19th, 1985, a decade before the bombing. So the CSA gets raided. It's the largest domestic gun seizure in the country at that time. They had a huge compound, a shooting range, a silhouette city, everything just like they had at Elohim City. And uh, so this guy, Snell, he's convicted for uh, the two murders. He gets uh, the death sentence for one of them and life in prison for the other. And he's sentenced to be executed on April 19th, 1995. And this guy, Snell, is really big in the white supremacist community. Um, his wife, Mary Snell, 
is friends with all of like the, the major leaders in that community. She's very good friends with Louis Beam, for example, and all these other people. And she makes newsletters with them. And so Snell has this whole group of people who are constantly writing to him in prison, who Snell is writing essays for their racist publications. Uh, he has a whole network that he's plugged into. And he's visited in prison regularly by his wife, Mary Snell, and it's his wife who funnels information to him from the underground, from Louis Beam and from the others. And so his wife is, is giving him information about kind of what's going on. And so is Robert Millar, the, the, the spiritual uh, leader of Elohim City. He's visiting Snell in prison as his uh, religious counsel or spiritual advisor. So he's visiting Snell up until the day of his death. He's also, I believe, funneling information to Snell. So Snell is saying that on the day that he's going to be executed, April 19th, 1995, there is going to be a bombing. He says there's going to be a terrorist attack. First, it's going to be blamed or thought to be carried out by Muslims. There'll be some confusion at first as to, as to over who did it. And it's going to be revenge. And we're going to, you know, we're going to strike back. And so he's making these proclamations. And this is all covered in the newspaper because the people there in, on death row are documenting his daily activities. And so it's documented that he's talking about this and he's talking about it and laughing about it and saying all these things I've just said. And so when the bombing happens, he uh, he's celebrating, just like Chevy Kehoe. He's watching it on TV. He's hooting and hollering about it. He loves it, you know, and he predicted that this was going to happen. Now, the prison official, the guy in charge of federal prisons there, Alan Abels, was quoted in the newspaper saying, yeah, he said this was going to happen, and it did. And Alan Abels was so concerned about it that he actually put his um, had his wife put in at a uh, federal facility on April 19th, 1995, because he feared for uh, her safety and his own safety by people who are Snell's followers and friends. So he took this very seriously and to get, to get his wife protection and then um, talking all about it to the newspaper after the execution happened and, or that is to say before the execution happened on the 19th, you know, the bombing happens just like he said it would. And so what do we have here? The exact same thing as we had with Kehoe. We have a white supremacist who's tied into all of the same figures at Elohim city who seems to know about it before it's going to happen. Okay. And then we see the very same thing with the, the third individual, guy named Louis Beam. Louis Beam was a propagandist for the white supremacist. He wrote an essay called Leaderless Resistance. He was put on trial in 1988 for sedition, along with about a dozen others of which he was acquitted. He uh, never can seem to get charges stuck to him. He, you know, he bombed a radio station. He tried to murder a, uh, a Chinese diplomat. Um, and he never has charges stick ever. It, well, he's another guy. When I look at him, and I think he looks a lot like an asset because charges never stick. Um, so Louis Beam, he uh, he's talking to a friend of his, a guy in prison named Roy Boyd, and he tells Boyd that uh, something's coming up in April, and he says it's going to resemble the plot to the Turner Diaries, where a federal building is going to get bombed. He mentions three cities. He even he mentions Oklahoma City, uh, Phoenix and Omaha as possible targets. And he says, uh, it's going to be a truck bomb and all this, everything that happened. And Louis Beam, just like all the others, is connected into this same network of people. But more than that, he also 
it's almost like if you did a diagram and you had people who knew about the bombing at, that are white supremacists and then you have people who are like assets and you laid them on you know did like a venn diagram it's like louis beam would be that spot in the middle like it's almost like he's both you know and so this is a theory that i'm developing along with another person uh boltzmann booty on on twitter um he also believes that louis beam was an asset and one thing that's interesting that he dug up is that louis beam is uh, his, his main essay that he wrote is called leaderless resistance which is a theory about how to form a terrorist lone wolf cell without a hierarchy and he um beam says in his essay leaderless resistance that he got this concept from a cia counterinsurgency guy and at the time he wrote that the time beam wrote this is before the internet you know and so there's no way that Louis Beam would ever be in possession of like a classified counterinsurgency study about leaderless resistance. The only way he has that is if he's trained on it, you know, and we speculated that he may have seen this in Vietnam. Uh, Beam was in Vietnam and we suspect he might have been involved in counterinsurgency there or might have been a Phoenix asset and because we think how is it that he knows about the cia strategy and then why is he coming over here to the united states and he's promoting it and he's stirring up domestic gladio and then no charges ever stick and then he knows about the bombing before it happens but then nothing happens to him and he's still alive and so um, those are uh three of the people um there's another one here uh let's see we did uh snell um now oh, the next one is uh Mark Thomas. Mark Thomas was affiliated with the Aryan Republican Army. Again, just like all the rest, lived at Elohim City from time to time. Met friends with all the same people, part of the same network. Well, Mark Thomas told his girlfriend, this is in an FBI document that I have, he told his girlfriend that we're going to hit one of their buildings. We're going to hit it in the middle of the day. Um, we're going we're gonna to strike back at them. We're going to take out a federal building. And uh, so pretty much the same thing that that Beam said. And again, I think that this all goes to show that who are the people that we don't know, the John Doe 2, the other assets, it's all white supremacists and feds. And so that tells us we don't know who John Doe 2 is because he was a fed. We don't know who these others were because they were white supremacists that were in some way co-opted by feds. So ultimately, that's my theory. That's what I believe. Yeah, I, uh, I tend to agree. Uh, the Mueller murders, when, when were those again? I, I think they were shortly It was in after. Uh, 95, I want to say, or early yeah. 96. Because I think those are very, because I was thinking that, and that's like a very, uh, it may not strike it to a lot of people, but I think that's a very important time, a very important thing, especially the timing. Because you got to think to how that affects the motivations of a lot of the actors involved here. Uh, and you know why people shut the fuck up uh, exactly. or, or play the role given to them the way uh, whether you know there's there's a probably a whole uh, uh, strew of different uh, motivations for different individuals and reasons why they got sucked in or whatever because and you know and why they may play the part because you know you murder someone's entire family that sends a very strong message. At the uh, time that Michael Fortier testified that he feared reprisals from the Aryans if he talked about the accomplices, Mueller's whole family was dead. You yeah. know, that whole family was killed. And I'm sure Michael Fortier knew about that, you know. Yeah. And so I, there are a lot of people in this case who I think knew, look, these people aren't playing around. Richard Guthrie, 
he starts talking, found dead in prison. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, this is a case where if you talk about it or you talk out of school, these people will kill you. Yeah. yeah and when I say these people, I'm talking about the neo-Nazis and the feds. Yeah. And the feds will kill you, too. I mean, they, they killed Terrence Eakey. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, and, and, and it does in, in a way, I guess it almost does complicate it to some extent because it is like who did what? Because uh, it does show that, um, you know, that guy was clearly very connected with the, uh, you know, the white supremacist movement. But it's also like, I don't know to what extent maybe it was a Fed, but it does make you wonder who did what. Uh, but, yeah, that, uh, that I think that is actually very integral. I, I've never heard that anywhere else. That's actually a very important point, because I think a lot of people just think, oh, well, why didn't they do this or why didn't they do that? It's like, well, because someone's entire fucking family got killed. That's uh, right. So that all right. That now, now that's a, uh, that study that I mentioned. That's not been cited or used anywhere thus far. I got a copy of that study, and I did put it on the Libertarian Institute archive. And it's in the section called "There's a section called something like Reports DOJ, etc. Miscellaneous." It's under there, and uh, I was shocked when I saw it. It said that this whole that the, the Kehoe did this as a contract killing uh, for the ARA. Uh, for and when also when they say for the ARA, it was talking about Michael Brescia and Andy Strassmeyer. It said that they did that it was done for them because this family had information about the ARA's involvement in the bombing. And so um, it's not just, you know, uh, the Mueller's um, is like you, you mentioned, there are other people who have been killed and uh, it speaks to why people uh, keep quiet. Yeah, I mean, I mean, other people have been killed, but that is a different level, uh, a different yeah. level of depravity. I mean, it was a young, this girl's like, you know, eight or nine. It was yeah. a little girl. Yeah, so, well, I have Larry sent a super chat for $50. I appreciate Larry. Made you look, made you smile this time, too. Marvin Bush did all that shiz. Uh, appreciate it, Larry. Uh, I like it when you do that. Uh, hey, James, uh, a good, good friend of mine. Uh, so appreciate you popping in. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's wild. Uh, unless you have anything else to add to this section, I think we're at a good, uh, good closing time. Uh, okay. So, so if you have anything else to add, now, now you can, or you can drop your plugs. Sure, sure. So yeah, just one thing to add: if people are interested in any of this stuff, a great resource is if you go to libertarianinstitute.org. On the right-hand side, near the top, there's a search function. And one thing really cool about that is if you search for a term there. It's going to look inside of every PDF that's in that archive. So it'll show you every PDF that has your search term. So you could search for something like Kehoe or Yakey, and you're going to get every document and every news report that mentions it. So anything that I've talked about on this episode that you might want to know more about, go there and search, and you're going to get a whole bunch of good results. Yeah. Uh, well, I very much appreciate your time. I echo uh, Anna's sentiment here. She said, thank you, too. Thanks for all the hard work, Richard. More people need to see this stuff. Like with that, I do think, especially now more than ever, I think, you know, please share this stuff or at least just not even just, you don't necessarily share the show, but it's just knowledge. Uh, you know, I think in the next episode, we will go start like the stuff that uh, I think this is going to be like the juicy stuff that kind of draws people in in the next episode, uh, the yeeky stuff, the trying to do stuff, because uh, this is the stuff that I think sucks people in. But uh, the way I see this, the purpose of this series was to kind of be for those who are actually very interested in learning everything about this. This next episode, or maybe two, will be the kind of stuff that you can kind of use as, I guess, little red pills for uh, normies to kind of suck them in. Like, what about this guy? What about that? Like, the wild shit. Uh, and uh, that'll be the kind of stuff that you can use. Uh, I know this is kind of stuff that gets covered a lot, but we'll, we'll go into that uh, for sure. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. 
Um, but yeah, this is a, but yeah, like I said, now more than ever, I think this, I'm more fearful than ever at this current time, uh, you know, in our, uh, you know, in the state of the nation or whatever of something like this happening again right now. Absolutely. Me too. This, this, uh, politically speaking, this would, uh, this would usher in a whole lot of stuff and be very convenient for a lot of people. But Mm -hmm. my only hope is that maybe we're at a time where we have reached a, uh, national consciousness or at least enough of a consciousness to where we have enough people that are uh, getting wise to the bullshit and you know and hopefully we have enough researchers on the ground or people just looking for stuff that will compile information we're in the age of the internet we're hopefully you know my ultimate hope is that this wouldn't happen because you know enough people they realize are aware but if it does i think it's a super key that we don't end up with another 9-11 moment where people, everyone rallies around the flag and goes for whatever thing it is they're pushing. No, we'll uh, be on it immediately. There's yeah. going to be at least a group of five or six people. And then who knows how many other random people, you know, we're yeah. going to know right away, exactly. you know, because we're, we're, we're already breaking apart the Oklahoma city bombing. And should we see a part two, um, all the, the hallmarks are going to be there, you know, and we're, you're, there'll be researchers ready to investigate yeah. that one. It's just the only hope is, and I, I know there will be, and the only hope is there's enough people to make a difference to really right. seed enough of doubt that it won't be something that they can get enough people to rally behind to do whatever the hell it is they want to do. Uh, I mean, I could list all the things they probably would want to do. Uh, it's so easy. I mean, once well, I you share start, your concern. You know, they're going to ca- yeah. characterize anybody who is anti- against Biden is the terrorist. Yes. You're, you're another McVeigh. That's what they're trying to do now already. They, they're already saying that half the country, 50% of the country is a threat to democracy. So it's crazy. How do you have a major two-party system with Democrats and Republicans? And there's one candidate, the Democrat, and he says that the, oh, the other major party's opponent, uh, oh, they're all threats to democracy. Oh, what? So should, we should just have a single party rule? Is that it? Is that what you want? You want just a single party rule and then the people who disagree with you, their very ideas threaten the entire country? It's ridiculous. It's absurd. I think it was incredibly offensive and deeply offensive to the 46, 47 million Americans who did vote for a different candidate. And regardless of what you might think, I don't support, you know, Donald Trump, uh, but yeah. I also don't support Joe Biden. And uh, I think that uh, characterizing half the country as a threat to democracy is in itself incredibly dangerous and disrespectful to our Constitution and something our founding fathers would have denounced. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. But yeah, uh, with that, this is a No Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube, all the major auto podcasters, Odyssey as well. If you want to follow me uh, on social media, at Senor Jose 2020 is where I'm more at most active. But I do get nuked often. So if you want to follow me somewhere as a backup, Jose Galison on Facebook. Uh, yeah, and I, I would suggest, uh, you know, going to things like Odyssey. I've already gotten one strike for questioning that, uh, that, that sacred thing that happens every four years in this nation. Uh, so, and I wouldn't be surprised if I end up getting another one for whatever reason at some point. I don't know how long this YouTube channel will stick around. Hopefully, I can make it last forever because this is where most people go. But follow me on alternate things, whether it be the audio podcast or whether it be Odyssey. Uh, yeah. And for those who, you know, uh, don't like the whole paywall thing or whatever, go to Odyssey because I don't, nothing is paywalled there because it's mirrored everything. So, this thing, by the time I, I, you know, put this behind the paywall after it's done, it's already up on you, Odyssey. So, you don't have to worry about that if you, uh, and, you know, if you don't want to give me money, go follow me on Odyssey, and I'm fine with that because uh, that way I have a backup. So go do that. 
Uh, if you want to support me monetarily, I'd appreciate that as well. Uh, Patreon.com, just no way Jose 2020. Uh, definitely share this stuff around, whether it be just the knowledge or the podcast itself, whatever you think seems to be more fitting. I think it is a super important time to be sharing this type of content. Uh, but yeah, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. I appreciate your time, Richard. We'll try and knock out. I'll see when we can schedule him for a next one. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one for sure. These are always great. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And with that, we are out. Excellent. Yeah.